welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Yes, they grew up all too fast, and uh, I've got all those pictures hanging on the walls at home, you know, and sometimes I, I reminisce and wish for the old days. And then when I think about all of the work and the diapers, then I think, well, you know, it's good that that's all passed and they're launched. <laughs> this morning I have a message to you based on a psalm in the Old Testament that was read for our text in Psalm 25, verse 14. And I'd like for you to open your Bibles there, which I want to make a comment on in just a few moments. You know, it's worse than the plague of AIDS. It's what causes despairing souls to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. It plagues teenagers. It's what causes the breakup of couples ending in divorce. It's what divides nations and causes wars. It's the basic human condition. We are all enemies from God. And this feeling of disconnect from God, which plagues all human beings, is buried in the deep within the human psyche, and if it was not buried subconsciously, we would all implode and commit suicide. And so the human mind tries to hide it and not be honest with itself, but our alienation from God manifests itself in our anxiety, which drives us throughout life having no hope and anticipating death. The basic motivation of life, the reason why we do everything, is fear. But God proclaims to us sinners the reason to live. And there is a text, this psalm, that introduces us to the subject of God's covenant, and it's the solution to our problem of alienation. When I first came to this church at the call of the Lord, this text intrigued me because of its beautiful language, and I confess that I did not really understand what it was saying. And I'm still trying to grasp the mighty truth of it, but maybe coming a little closer to understanding it. It says, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Now, it's not difficult to figure out what the secret of the Lord is because the Lord doesn't like to play hide-and-seek with us and keep secrets from us. The Lord desires to reveal his secrets to us. And it comes to those who fear him, it says, that which means not to cringe at him. It means to love him. That word fear means to love him. So his secret is loving God with all of the heart that has been emptied of self. And when you look at the cross intently, and appreciate the cost that was given for you. And your enemy heart is reconciled to God. And you begin to experience the self-giving, self-denying love of God. 
then you are beginning to understand the secret of the Lord. The purpose of God's covenant is to reconcile alienated hearts to himself, and to them is promised the inheritance of eternal life and an earth made new. The ultimate meaning of the cross is God's everlasting covenant. God is revealing to all a deeper appreciation of Jesus' cross with the purpose of reconciling our enemy hearts to himself. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Dear Lord, we pray that you will reveal to us the secret that is found in your covenant, the secret of a deeper love, a deeper appreciation of your self-giving on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever thought of Abraham in the Old Testament as someone whom, whose heart God needed to win? God needed to win Abraham's heart. And God is uh, an evangelist. In the deepest, most being of his soul, he's wanting to win souls. He's a soul winner. He's an evangelist. And so that he was to Abraham there in the Old Testament. Have you ever thought that God revealed to Abraham right there in the Old Testament the cross of Calvary? Yes, he did. We're told in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 8, as Paul is quoting the scriptures, it says, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, that is, forgive them through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham. Do you see there? God preached to Abraham the gospel. Only evangelists preach the gospel. Folks who are evangelists love souls. They love soul winning. They desire to see hearts won to Jesus. And what is the best way to win hearts to Jesus? That's to uplift the cross of Christ. And that's what God did with Abraham. He showed to him the cross and won his heart. Here we have God taking the initiative, showing to him the gospel of the cross. And Abraham, when he saw this love of God crucified, crucifying self for him, it, it just melted his old, selfish, Gentile, heathen heart to the Lord. And he was born again. He became a new creation. Then if you go to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2, God gave Abraham some wonderful promises. We call it the everlasting covenant. It was to the whole human race, to Abraham, supernaturally revealed to Abraham seven wonderful promises. Let's tick them off, shall we? Genesis 12 and verse 2. God says, And I will make of thee a great nation. Now you know that that means a church. God would make of him a church, you see. And then it says, I will bless thee. Abraham, you will prosper. And make thy name great. You know, Abraham later became known as the friend of God. We're told that in James chapter 2, verse 23. At the end of the day, would you like to have your name be known as the friend of God? That would be a blessed name to have, the friend of God. And thou shalt be a blessing. In other words, Abraham will be proclaiming good news. 
Oh, it's the desire of my heart to proclaim nothing but good news. I want to be a bearer of good news. I don't want to be a bearer of bad news. And Abraham was a bearer of good news to poor sinners. And I will bless them that bless thee. That is, with more abounding grace. You know something? The gift of grace in Christ Jesus far exceeds, yes, the devastation of our sin. Exponentially, grace overwhelms sin. Aren't you thankful for that? And curse him that curseth thee, it says. In other words, sin's natural course is self-destruction. That's the curse. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And that is that every human being has temporal life now because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross with the prospect of immortality if they don't hinder the gift that has been given to them. So God didn't ask any promises from Abraham when he gave him these seven wonderful promises because salvation is not faith and works. God's plan of salvation is faith alone. And the faith that appreciates the gift of Calvary is constrained by Jesus' self-denying love. And such genuine faith is rare today, but this genuine faith does work by love. And you can write Galatians 5, verse 6 down, which says, faith which works by love. So Abraham simply believed God's promise And we're told a few chapters later in Genesis 15, verse 6, that he believed in the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. Simply speaking, Abraham was forgiven by faith, or justified by faith. In Romans chapter 4, 13, it explains that further. It says, for the promise... By the way, that's another word for God's everlasting covenant. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed, and we know that to be Christ, through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So this word justified by faith, or uh, made uh, that we're reading about here, righteousness by faith, Uh, We don't need to be put off by the word justified, by faith. It just means to be straightened out. Uh, Any of you folks ever driven down the road with an irritating wobbly wheel that has a vibration in it? Doesn't that bother you? Doesn't that irritate you? What, What does that wheel need? It needs to be justified, doesn't it? It needs to be straightened out. So you take it into a mechanic and you have them balance the tires and align them. And now you can go out on the freeway and go the limit, and you don't have that irritation uh, of that vibration. And the word justified by faith simply means that we human beings as sinners, we need to be straightened out, don't we? We need to be aligned. We need to be balanced. And by faith, which is the human response of appreciating Jesus' cross, it deepens our repentance, and Jesus straightens us out. That's what justified by faith means. It means the forgiveness of sins and the experience of power to overcome sin. So when God justifies a man, he doesn't do a half job of it. By that I mean just 
adjusting some legal accounts as far as your records are concerned up in heaven because you have a mental ascent of faith, but God also straightens up the man himself inside out. When one experiences the forgiveness of his sins truly, it changes the enemy heart from a rebel to a friend of God, and there is peace between that soul that is forgiven and God. Now, we can never truly experience the forgiveness of sins until we see what it costs Jesus to remove them. And so long as there is a confessional approach to our prayers, and the mechanics may be all there as to asking for all of my sins to be removed, but I will get up off of my knees, an unchanged man, and pursue my own worldly life until the next week's confessional And justification by faith is a personal understanding of a change in legal status, having sins remitted, but it's also a heart change, resulting in a new motivation of Jesus' love in overcoming sin. God's promise to Abraham was dependent upon a future child. One of the motivations for us to have families and children is so that our name can go on. You know, uh, you have Donovan Phipps here. He's going to carry on the Phipps name, isn't he? You're very fortunate. You have a son to do that. And the same thing with the Deland name. You have a Philip that's going to carry on the Deland name. I wonder what's going to happen to me. I have two daughters. Well, Abraham knew that the promises that God had given to him was dependent upon him having a son. Uh, it says in Genesis 14, verses 3 and 4, And Abraham said, Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, no child, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. He's referring to, uh, to Ishmael. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This Ishmael shall not be thine heir, But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. So the promise was dependent upon Abraham and Sarah having a son. But when decades went by and Sarah had no child, and in her unbelief she persuaded Abraham to deny God's promise in taking her personal assistant Hagar for a surrogate, it resulted in the birth of Ishmael. And that whole sordid affair is an example of the old covenant experience. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 24, he who was of the bond woman, meaning Hagar, was born after the flesh. So Ishmael was born motivated by self-interest. Abraham and Sarah were interested in helping God fulfill his promise. But uh, The heir, Abraham's true heir, could never come as a result of the birth of self-interest, self-motivation. The flesh is the taproot of sin. It is the ego that is bent toward self-centeredness, which manifests, you know, the real taproot of sin is unbelief of God's promise. Unbelief of God's promise. The old covenant of unbelief produces bondage in sin. So Abraham went afoul of God's plan for him. 
and it became a paradigm alongside God's covenant because we read there in verse 24, Paul wrote that it's an allegory for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. So something happened at Mount Sinai as well as when Abraham had this illicit uh, affair with Hagar that illustrates the old covenant of self-motivation. Abraham's experience of old covenant unbelief became an example of what it means to be under the law. You know, to be under the law means to revert back to our natural born love of self. And this is out of harmony with God's law of self-giving love and self-denial. The love of self is driven by fears which seek a heavenly, heavenly reward as opposed to the terror of hell. We don't want to go to hell, so we want to go to heaven. And all of this is driven by our fears of self. Self can only produce sin. And sin is the abolishment of God's law. So the two experiences of the old covenant and the new covenant are not exclusive to before the cross and after the cross in terms of time, as is so often misunderstood. The two experiences of unbelief and faith are the old covenant and the new covenant, respectively. And those two experiences run on two separate but parallel tracks both before the cross as well as after the cross. And the two covenant experiences are not dispensational in respect of the cross being the great divide between the two because Abraham believed God, but then he did not continue to believe in God's promise to give him his son. Believing God's promise is the normal Christian life of repentance, but he reverted back to that old human default position of unbelief, which is the old covenant. So when in her 90s, finally, Sarah uh, exchanged her unbelief for belief in God's promise, we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. You know, there's something about unbelief that produces barrenness. But when she believed God's promise, she became fruitful. It says, through faith also herself, she received strength to conceive seed. Wow. And who was born? Isaac was born. And Isaac's name means joy and rejoicing, a delight to his parents. Here was a baby who didn't cry all night and keep his, his mother up. Here was a baby who was unselfish. When something needed to be fixed, Mama would say, Isaac, can you help? And Isaac said, sure, I'll fix that well that's all plugged up. I'll go down there and dig it out, you know, dig all that dirt out of there. Sure, you got a lamb that's astray, I'll go out and find him. You know, Isaac was just a joy, a delight. Uh, We all wish we had children like that, don't we? (laughs) Jesus was a delight. 
and uh, to his mother and to his father, and a joy. He was such an obedient child. Whenever Abraham had a problem, Isaac was there to fix it. Now all of Abraham's hopes were dependent on a future Messiah through Isaac. Everything would be fulfilled through this son of his Isaac. So the Lord tried or permitted Abraham's faith to be tested in his covenant promise by asking him to sacrifice his uniquely darling son of promise. Uh, we, we just did a little traveling in the south, and we kept hearing this word whenever we would go into places to eat. Uh, the lady serving us would say to us, Darlin'. You don't hear that in California. But in the south, you're called Darlin'. It's kind of nice, you know. <laughs> uh, if I hear that from my beloved, Darlin', you know, that connotes very warm connotation. When I hear it from the, from the uh, server, I think, what right does she have to call me Darlin'? You know? But she doesn't mean it in that way, in a romantic way, you know. But here was Isaac, and he was their darling, their unique one, you know, just like your children are your darlings, you know, They're your precious ones. You would, you would sacrifice yourself before you would sacrifice them, wouldn't you? So God was asking, would Abraham's heart be wholly reconciled to what God wanted, what God would will here? Or would Abraham disappoint God by embarrassing him before the universe, by exposing him to the accusations of the devil that there was no one on earth who manifested a complete atonement, at one with God as a result of appreciating the gospel? Was there anyone on earth who would sublimate, who would deny their will to keep their son, no matter what the cost, but rather sacrifice their son at the will of the father who asks that? Would there be that kind of love for the father above? And all heaven watched with amazement as Abraham and Isaac made the ultimate sacrifice. I, what I'm suggesting here to you is that the father and the son, Abraham and Isaac, both made the ultimate sacrificial choice. And this is a wonderful illustration of what the true father and the son later did at the cross. You know, if faith is a sympathetic appreciation of the character of God, that kind of faith is not of this world. It is unworldly. It is entirely unnatural understanding of the motives which led Jesus to Calvary. No human motivations would ever lead one to go to Calvary. It's only motivations that are divine that would lead one to go to Calvary. Is it possible that such motivations could be transplanted into human sinners' hearts? Is that possible? We're told by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his 
only begotten Son. It can be readily seen that Abraham's faith included much more than confidence in Isaac's possible resurrection or any uh, prophetic prescience that in the end everything would be turned out all right and Abraham, or Isaac would be restored to his father as far as it was possible for a weak and sinful man to do so, Abraham experienced the surrendering love of the Heavenly Father who offered up his only begotten Son. Heaven must have looked on the tender and moving scene with unutterable interest. Were Satan's accusations true that no human being could understand and appreciate an utterly, purely unselfish and disinterested motive to the extent of willingly sacrificing something dearer than life? Would Abraham, the father of the faithful, be at one with God in the final analysis of his character? Was his heart beating in tune with the fathomless throbbings of infinite love? Trembling and with tears, And yet, by faith, Abraham ascends the ladder that links earth with heaven. His faith lays hold upon the very gates of heaven. And weeping, he climbs still higher in his faith. He ascends above the heights of the clouds until his faith has reached its apex. And he sits beside the throne of God, One with the Father, the final embrace is given. He bids Isaac farewell for the last time, and he raises the knife to slay him. His darling, something far, far dearer to old Abraham than his weary life, he withholds not his son Isaac. Nothing more could Abraham sacrifice. Abraham was just a child of humanity. By faith in Christ, he becomes like the Most High. No wonder he's called the Friend of God. Would you like to have that name too? The Friend of God. You know, the very place to which Satan had aspired to be like the Most High has been taken by one of Satan's former subjects, Abraham. Can you believe the irony? The plan of redemption is a success. This heathen's heart has been won to God. Faith triumphs. Humanity's adoption into the family of God is assured. And all who will share with faithful father Abraham the faith with it, which he exemplified will share alike in the reward, which is the atonement with God. So yes, both Abraham and Isaac, they committed themselves to separation from each other. To separation. And now the divine redemption price could be more fully appreciated by heaven and earthlings. Isaac was in full agreement with his father's sacrifice, and by faith Isaac himself offered himself as a sacrifice. I would like to connect this with the most memorized text in all of the Bible, which is what, folks? 
John 3.16, the immortalized words of Jesus were based upon what we're just talking about, the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac, who was the only, only darling son. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only darling begotten son, the only one of his kind. The father had none other, just this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. His only begotten son is his only unique darling one. Can you begin to appreciate the cost of Calvary for you? God paid the price for your redemption with his own son. The son did not pay the price to an offended father who needed some divine payoff to appease his anger against sinners. That's the pagan view of the atonement. God took the initiative in his covenant. He gave the atonement in his son And it was the Son who bridged the gulf of darkness between himself and the Father on the cross by his faith in the promise of his Father. And this faith of Jesus was the atonement. Dear friends, do you realize that your life is equal in value to the life of the only unique darling Son of God? I'm, I'm just thinking that maybe you're trying to Digest that, and I'll take that silence as that, okay? Amen. Amen. The price paid by both the Father and the Son was given to you. And when you go to the store and you find an item that you want to purchase, and there's a sticker price of $10 on it, and you look at the item, you say, well, I think that this is marked appropriately. It's worth $10. Then you go to the cashier with the item, and you exchange, don't you? You give a $10 bill for, for the item. You believe that it's worth the equivalent value, don't you? So now Jesus has paid for your soul with his life. And he says that your life is equivalent in value to his life. Now you think about that. That should win your heart, shouldn't it? That should win your heart. Because his life was a sinless one and an endless life. Well, Abraham had some hope when he sacrificed Isaac. He believed in the resurrection from the dead. Sure, he did. Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19. God told Abraham however, that he would die, not having received the promise. But the land of promise, we're told that he walked in, was a strange country, and it was not the land promised him in God's everlasting covenant. We're told in Hebrews eleven ten, for he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. God has given to you the gift of salvation. 
He's given to you Jesus. That's the gift of salvation right there. By grace. First, not by faith. He's given that grace, that gift to every soul out there in the world. And the more we dig into it and the more we peel the layers of the onion off of this great gift of redemption, the more we see that we don't know about it, right? The more we see we're just scratching the surface of it, that this is a big idea to wrap our puny little minds around. It's enough to sustain us for the rest of our lives as well as into eternity. That your life is of equivalent value to the life of the sinless, endless life of the Son of God. Contemplate that for this coming week. Amen. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.